Hi guys, this is John McGann from Max Tennis Academy in Ireland and I'm here with my co-host Dan Kiernan from Soto Tennis in Spain. Together we've created the podcast Control the Coronables, which includes some of the top players from around the world. Our objective is very simple. We want to be able to educate, entertain and energize the tennis community during this very difficult period that we're all going through. Hope you enjoy our next podcast. Welcome to episode 19 of Control the Coronables. Today we have the highest ever Irish ATP player, 129 in the world, at his peak, and current Irish Davis Cup captain, Conan Ireland. There's something very special about having the current Irish Davis Cup and and current Irish Fed Cup captains in my co-host John McGann on the same show. Uh, we really do get our our brains together on Irish tennis throughout the throughout the podcast. So Irish people listen out for that. Uh, Connor shares shares his story from growing up in the UK. Uh, he's a very intelligent lad who who speaks incredibly well. I'm sure you'll all enjoy it. I also want to take the opportunity to say a big thank you to you all for continuing to support. If you've just found our podcast, then welcome. Uh, please do subscribe to the podcast. Uh, we're getting to understand how this podcast world works. If you could leave us a review and a, and, and a rating on, on the podcast, it takes 20 seconds. It'll help get all of this fantastic content out there to more people, which I think the tennis world deserves and further afield. Anyway, I'm going to now pass you over to, to the show. Enjoy Conan Island. So Conan Island, welcome to Control the Coronables. Cheers, lads. Happy to be here. Cheers, Conan. As, as is tradition with, with the podcast, a little introduction to, to listeners. Anybody Irish listening will know the household name that is Conan Island. Um, people globally, Connor was a, a career high of 129 ATP and qualified at Grand Slams, an Irish Davis Cup player and now Ireland's Davis Cup captain. And, and one thing that I have to say, which I'm very proud of, I'm now sitting talking to the Irish Davis Cup captain and our own John McGann, Irish Fed Cup captain. So it's great to have these great Irish minds so looking forward to getting stuck into a few conversations, Connor. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I've heard a couple of the podcasts uh, the last couple of weeks, obviously during this slightly slower time, and uh, I've heard some really interesting uh, chats you've had. So, uh, yeah, no, looking forward to getting stuck in with you lads. And you mentioned the interesting time. How, how's, how's things your end? How's that affect your, your world currently? Yeah, well, it's we've got two small kids, so um, spending a lot of time with them, which is brilliant. Um, spent about half an hour this morning watching a caterpillar walk across a footpath, so uh, that really gives you some sense into my days at the moment. Um, obviously, myself and my wife both work full time. We've got nine to five office jobs and are trying to work from home uh, and sort of, you know, I'll take the kids for two hours and she'll get some calls and then vice versa. So it is challenging. Um, hopefully we can get back to some sort of normality. I think I'm back in the office two days a week from the start of June. Um, and that's the plan at the moment. Um, but uh, yeah, looking forward to, to getting past. But like, I think 
people who have kind of got kids in school, I think they feel like they're missing out a little bit more. Like our kids are only, they're only one and three. So they're delighted to just be spending a lot of time with us. And it's actually been brilliant to, to get all that time together. So it's been, it's been pretty good, you know, but it's, uh, it's two months now. So hopefully we see some, uh, we see some light at the end of the tunnel soon. And, and you touched on going to the office. Obviously, Irish, one of the Irish highest ever ATP ranked players in Ireland, if not the highest. I don't know if that's yeah, that, that well. Happened. Matt Doyle, Matt Doyle um, was, he was born and raised in, in, in California and played for the US for a number of years, but then he declared for Ireland um, kind of midway through his 20s uh, and played Davis Cup for us, and he was 60, I think. Um, so he, uh, he he's the highest, um, but uh, yeah, not, not too far off. He's like Greg Rosetsky, is he? The Greg Rosetsky of Ireland. A little bit, yeah, a little bit, yeah. Well, I think, I don't know, what age was Greg when he uh, declared? He was pretty young, I think, but yeah, he was established, so yeah, pretty... Um, yeah, pretty pretty good analogy. But uh, yeah, no, just I, I suppose my point on that, Connor, is, and we'll touch on Irish tennis a little bit more later in the podcast. But you're not you're not fully in the world of tennis. So you know, you obviously you're, you're Davis Cup captain. So what is the day job? What is the day job right now? Yeah, so I I went back um, after uh, after I retired in 2012. Um, I I coached. Um, for, for two years and, and did a master's um, in real estate um, in, uh, in in Dublin Institute of Technology. Um, and then uh, once, I, once I got my master's, went into, into property. So I'm working in a commercial property uh, firm um, in, in, in Dublin. Um, so I've actually been doing it now um, nearly six years uh, in that world. So uh, a bit of a learning curve for me. I'd never spent any time in an office, um, you know, and never kind of, um, done it on a full day, nine to nine to six or whatever it is in the office. So um, it was a bit different. Um, but I'm actually I, I kind of enjoy the the fact that you can you can switch off fully on a Friday evening at five o'clock. You're you know you, you got that weekend with your uh, with your friends and family. And um, I found the coaching a little bit more. You know, obviously a lot of evenings and weekends, and and I, I like to kind of have the tennis as more of a, maybe a social part of my life as opposed to my day job. But obviously I'm still involved with Davis Cup, which is brilliant. But again, it's only, it's a couple of weeks a year. There's lots of maintenance through the year, um, but it's not, you know, even close to a full-time job. So it's a nice balance for me. And how, and how's your tennis career helped you? You know, have you seen any crossover in the, in your new world? I think, um, I think with tennis and certainly in my career, I always felt like I was, um, you know, you're always was chasing and you're always probably in situations where you feel like you're a little bit uncomfortable or not quite there or always kind of reaching. So like when you're at the futures, you're trying to get up to the challenger level. And when you get up to the challengers, you're, you're a little bit out of, out of, out of your depth maybe for a few months and then he's getting more comfortable. And I found at work, there's something similar that you know the first six months you might be a little bit uh, uncomfortable in a certain meeting with a certain you know group of people but then after a year or two that becomes more more normal and you're in a comfort zone and you just kind of keep moving along that way so yeah from that perspective I've, I've seen some parallels and just sort of maybe you feel like you're not you're not there um you know you're not where you want to be um in work but then you know, I, say I felt that I felt that in tennis many times, and you know, if you keep putting it in, you'll you'll get there after a while. So yeah, that's that's definitely something that's helped. What about your, the competitive spirit? Yeah, I'm, I'm, funnily enough, I'm I'm not particular. Like I'm not really 
like a particularly competitive person off court. I, I was very competitive on court, and and when it came to sport, that I think that was probably because it was kind of something that it was so much a part of my identity that I really hung a lot on it. So I was as competitive as anybody on court, but off court, I'm you know I'm I'm, I'm pretty laid back, and in a work environment, I'd be quite. Um, quite laid back as well uh, even though obviously I have ambitions and that but it's a little bit different um the, the tennis um was something that I really I suppose it was my my passion and as I say my identity so it was something that I think I put a little bit extra into um, and I haven't really got that um the, that same intensity I suppose it's probably a good thing um in my in my work life yeah it's a, it's funny you say that Connor I remember being at several future events and tournaments with you uh, down through the years and it, 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 amazing how you applied yourself I, I was the type of lad that would be running around scapering for strikes and hitting all day and sweating and running and I remember being in Bournemouth one year and you were just like so kosher you were in the room you were I think you were watching Higgins playing snooker or something and I was knocking on your door <laughs> saying you want to come up down for a, you know a game of tennis you, you seem to get the balance, the balance of that really, really well at an early stage. That you, you know, do you think that's something that's that that's that helps you as an athlete, as a player? Yeah, I, uh, yeah, I remember that. Uh, that was the uh, the cruise, the cruise of all. It would have been April, yeah. So it would have been uh, the snooker would have been on. So yeah, there was no getting away from that. Um, yeah, like uh, I think I probably. I was very big. I was big into energy conservation actually when I was on the tour, and and I used to uh, probably not do as much. And looking back, I probably I feel like I probably should have pushed the boat out a bit more. Like at the, towards the end of my career, like when I qualified for the US Open and and that, like my 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 girlfriend at the time, now my wife, we we had a great week week and a half there, and we would you know go out to dinner and you know go kind of almost sightseeing and whereas earlier in my career I would have been almost not obsessed with kind of not overdoing it but I was always trying to stay off my feet trying to conserve and rest as much as possible and I probably uh, I probably kind of wish I probably found a bit more of a balance I think that week John I think the fact that there was a you there and a couple of Irish guys that always helped me as well yeah. um, uh, but, but obviously I was traveling usually with a coach and not with a group of lads. And I, I sometimes feel like I probably just didn't have quite enough. I didn't have an, enough fun probably out on the, on the road. Um, you can obviously go either way on that. Um, I, 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 you're, you're probably better off going the more cautious side than, than, than overdoing it. Um, but yeah, I, I feel like probably, probably could have uh, pushed the boat out a bit more and it might have, uh, it might have been a bit more of a fun uh, 25, 30 weeks that you are right there because it is an awful lot of time on the road. Yeah, no, I think you had the balance well down. And uh, as Dan said at the start, you know, the highest ATP ranked man, man to come out of the country. I think you had it well done, man. Yeah, I mean, I think I did, I think I did more right than wrong, that's for sure. And Connor, if we take it back, you know, I think, and, and I've said this on most podcasts, I, I think what's fascinating for me in this is the one common thing is tennis. You know, we've got people that have gone into many, many different fields, you know, and speaking to you, you've gone outside of tennis for, for a big part of your life. But tennis is the connection and, and that journey. And I think your, your journey is a really fascinating one. You know, so how, let's go back to the beginning. How, how did it start? 
Well, um, well, believe it or not, it started in in in, in for my for my family, I suppose, that we were in uh, Birmingham in the UK for a few years. Uh, my, my dad got a job over there. My parents were Irish, but we, we moved over there in the, uh, the early mid seventies. Um, and uh, so my elder siblings were all, uh, were all born there. Um, and I was born um, in 1981. Um, and my sister was already playing uh, tennis at quite a good level. Um, and we lived across the road from uh, Edgebaston Priory uh, in Birmingham, which is uh, obviously the WTA event there. And it's a, it's a great club. Uh, my mom had played growing up. Um, my dad hadn't, but uh, they both got quite into it over there. And, and as I say, my sister would have been top three or four, I think, in the UK, under 12. And my brother Ross was there, thereabouts as well, sort of under 10. Um, so obviously I had a racket in my hand running around the house, you know, at one and two and three. And then we, my dad got a job back in Ireland then, and we moved back to back to Limerick uh, when I was three. Um, and um, we built a tennis court in our backyard. Um, so had an AstroTurf court uh, back there. And uh, as I say, my sister and brothers were, were a really good level. So I was practicing with them. Um, and hitting with my mum and, and, and my dad at the weekends and, and, and a member of the local club, Limerick Lawn. Um, so, yeah, we had a, I had quite a good setup. Actually, my primary school was about literally like a two minute drive from, from our house in Limerick. And so I'd uh, play tennis with my mum Monday to Friday on the court at home just for 30 minutes, just, you know, from eight, nine or whatever, 30, 40 minutes. Um, and then I'd go to my soccer training or my swimming or whatever in the evening. So it was a nice balance that I didn't have to get in the car to go to tennis and then back in the car to go to something else. I was able to do a bit at home and then go. Mm -hmm. um, so I was obviously very lucky uh, to have both hitting partners and also just a, an old weather court literally outside my, my bedroom. But we also went to loads of, loads of competitions around the country as well. And uh, I think I played my first tournament at about seven and just always loved it. I was really keen um, and loved my time in Limerick Lawn Tennis Club as well. And, worked with some coaches there um, so that was sort of the, the very early days so you had a you had a top 50 support team when you were four <laughs> 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 pretty, I, I, pretty 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 good setup yeah I mean it was um it was it was incredible um for me to be able to hit and and my, my brother ross was a lefty and my sister was a righty so he had all that so uh yeah no it was it was a really really good um sort of sports education and and, and as i say did loads of different sports as well a big into my soccer and uh or football as you boys like to call it um and uh Yes, as I say, athletic swimming, rugby, hurling, Gaelic football, you know, the, the native Irish sports. So I did loads, um, but tennis was always the number one. Um, and I actually started to go to the UK on weekends then when I was about 10 or 11 for uh, the Adidas Challenges. Yeah. Um, you know, the two singles matches on a Saturday, two on a Sunday. Um, and uh, actually a funny story, I remember that the very first Adidas Challenge we went to, me and my mum went over and I guess I was 11 or whatever, 10 or 11. And it was in Manchester. It was the old, old Match Point, I think, was the name of the, yeah, yeah. the, the centre there. And uh, you know, we flew over on the Friday night or whatever. And uh, I guess we were staying close to the clubs, so we went in for like a look, you know, at the venue. I guess. And uh, me and my mum, <laughs> there was that bank of four courts on the front, and like the lights were off on the first two courts, and then the fourth one. But then there was this light shining down on court three, and me and my mum were just looking at this basically 
full professional, but he was also like 11, hitting with his dad. And I remember my mom going, oh no. <laughs> I was like, who is this guy? And it happened to be Simon Dixon, um, who was just a phenomenal player at that age, at, at, a, at a world level. He was, you know, he was basically number one, um, or right up there anyway. So it was sort of bad luck, really, that the first guy I saw playing in the UK was like this prodigy. Um, so it took me, uh, took me a few tournaments to kind of get my bearings and realize that you know not everybody was quite that standard. Uh, but they were amazing tournaments for me. Um, you know, through the winter, like we in Ireland still don't really have a have a proper setup in in the winter for match play. Um, whereas we've lots of tournaments in the summer, so I was able to go over there and play these, play in these great uh, indoor venues around the UK and get loads of matches in. And my level was at a really nice level in that I was I was number one in Ireland under twelve, but like in the UK I was probably I don't know off the top of my head maybe ten or something I don't know. Yeah. Um, you know the guys like Simon and Mark Hilton and and these guys were definitely a level up for me then. Um, so great for me to get that. Um, you know, and, and very little pressure as well. Like I remember all the, uh, there was this Rover scheme that they had for all the British players and all the kind of the chosen ones in their white track suits and they were all Rover and they're all obsessed with their LTA points. And, and, and I'm not, uh, and I'm not surprised it was, uh, I don't know who was put under more pressure, the Rover kids or the not Rover kids, but it was a, it was an interesting dynamic and I was a bit separate from it, but still getting the benefit of the tournaments. Um, so uh, I got a lot out of uh, out of those tournaments, and the depth in the UK. I always thought at that age was very very strong. Not a lot of the guys kind of seemed to kick on and, and make really good careers out of it, but they definitely had the ability. I thought. Um, so yeah, it was it was it was it was it was an interesting time uh, uh, getting over and, and seeing those players and playing against. Them. I have to I have to pull you back to Edgewas and Priory, Connor, because I don't know if I told you this, but I worked there for six years. Um, okay. but, but I didn't also, know that, no. But also my, my father-in-law was the chair, chairman of Warwickshire for many years. Um, and he, he always talks about yourself and Jamie Delgado as these, these Warwickshire players that <laughs> obviously yeah. went, went on, to, on to different things. And then the third connection, you mentioned Simon Dixon. Simon Dixon, I brought to Edgebass and Priory to work with myself. And I'm still good friends with Simon, and he still works at, at Edgewater. Yeah, no, I knew I knew he was there, um, and yeah, it's a, a wonderful club. And uh, yeah, my parents loved it, and they played lots of squash there, and uh, and lots of tennis, um, and it couldn't have been better. And then when we, when we moved back to to, to Limerick, um, you know, it's a town of about a hundred thousand people there's two tennis clubs uh Limerick Lawn has a kind of actually a really good tradition of of, of producing Davis Cup players and Fed Cup players yeah. um over the years but um but the same time just coming from from Eshbass and Priory it was a little bit of a of a rude awakening I think for them just facilities wise and that set, set up just didn't quite compare to one of these great clubs you know no it's an amazing, it's an amazing club and, and I, I think you're also talking about that it's there's a couple of things that, that stand out for me. One, you you had a different structure in terms of having siblings that you played with on a, on a court at home. And two, you had that competition structure and, and, and being able to do that and almost go under the radar makes a lot of sense. Because when I think of your, I'm a year older than you, when I think of your tennis journey, and my first memory, and, and I, I, I have to bring it up, Connor, even though you, you got the last laugh, 
Um, <laughs> you know, I remember it was the summer of 1996. Um, mm. One of the rough summer for me. I remember. <laughs> <laughs> it was, I wasn't feeling. The, wasn't feeling the ball that summer at all. <laughs> still to this day, one of the greatest moments of my life. Sorry to my wife for, for saying this. And Newcastle, <laughs> Newcastle United signed signed Alan Shearer for fifteen million pounds from from Blackburn Rovers. And I turned up to Dublin to play an ITF tournament, and I was I was practicing. I even remember I was practicing with a guy called John Monk, who I think was my doubles partner that week. And yeah. I, went, I went over to the bottle. And I went and I did like a Shearer turn and I even shouted, Shearer! And, uh, <laughs> and I sprained my ankle. And, and, and I thought, this is bad. And then I saw... The but luckily I've got an island tomorrow, so it's fine. <laughs> <laughs> but in all seriousness, I remember thinking, oh, I'm playing, I'm playing the little Irish lad, Connor. I mean, I was a year older than you. But yeah. you, know, you were obviously a good tennis player. But at that stage... You, and that was what that was. You were 15 at that point. At that stage, you certainly weren't in a position to be to be anybody even imagining that you would be a top 150 ATP player. You know, and I will won't even mention what happened in that match, Connor. But in terms of what it is really interesting for me is how you went from this 15, 16 year old to then seven, eight, nine years later being one of the best players in the world. You know, somebody who's mm. playing Grand Slams. What happened in that, that part of your, your tennis? Yeah, well, I, yeah, no, I, 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 uh, I do remember the match, and yeah, it was, it would have been what it was two and one or something, wasn't it? To you, it was, uh, it was comfortable. I, I would have, I would have struggled between the ages of sort of maybe thirteen, well, maybe fourteen to sixteen. Um, I never liked, first of all, I never liked. Um, playing guys who were kind of first strike tennis players anyway so your game style even though yes and we'll get back to the wider thing of you know I wasn't quite that level but I also wouldn't have liked your game style um, and, and wouldn't have liked it even when I was 26 and 27 I, I hated time getting taken away from me um, and, and not getting into a rhythm so there was a, a little bit of that and I remember just yeah that match and weight of shot just feeling really uncomfortable and not not quite there. Um, I was quite small, um, even for you know my own age group. Um, growing up, I had a, a big growth spurt in the summer of about '97, just before I went to I went to Millfield uh, for my A levels after my junior cert, um, and and got a lot bigger and I became. Um, yeah, as you say, the little Irish guy to being probably one of the better athletes at a tournament probably at the time, by the time I was about 18. So that was a big, a big difference. Um, and look, at I suppose I was, I was still based in, in Limerick in Ireland. And, and while my setup sounded brilliant for an eight or a nine-year-old, it was kind of the same setup when I was 15. Um, and that was, that was the, the problem for me when I went to uh, Le Petit or Team Tennis. Um, Winter Cups, you know, I'm playing against the best, the very best juniors in the world and the best juniors in Europe. I, I felt off the pace and I think I just probably wasn't getting what I needed day to day from that sort of between 12 and 15. Um, and then when I went to Millfield and I got to play a lot more tennis and a lot of indoor training, while I still talk about Millfield being a bit of a stepping stone for me and not what I needed, I should have probably gone to a, a Sanchez Casal or a Soto or a um, or, or a Bolletieri's to get that real kick on to be a, a top level sort of ITF player. But at the same time, it, it served me pretty well. Um, so, 
yeah, I think I think I think physically I just wasn't really there, you know, at that at that age, and 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 my let my hours weren't weren't probably close to what I needed them to be, um, you know, at that point in my career. So I was sort of playing catch up, um, but then I I think I had the I had the base kind of of a really solid game and became a very good athlete. And then between the ages of sort of seventeen, eighteen, on. You know, I, I barely missed, I barely had a bad sort of week. I kind of kept building and took on a philosophy of trying to get a bit better every day. And uh, college tennis in the US sort of toughened me up even more. Played on the tour for a year, got to 800, went to college in the States. Tons of wins, tons of matches, a lot of training, a lot of physical work. Um, got me to a level where I was, I was tough to beat. Um, so, yeah, it was, it was a long journey, though. <laughs> mm. As you as you're talking now, Connor, I I can actually remember that cold sport as well. Um, obviously I was a year behind you when I was playing tennis, and while Dan was beating you up, you were certainly beating me up. Um, <laughs> you gave me several dustings in different tournaments that we played at. I remember the first time playing against you in Lansdowne Tennis Club, and two of my friends had taken the journey up with me from Dundalk, and uh, I think they were I think they were having a few smokes on the side of the court while you were past me when I was trying to come up to the up to the net an absolute dust and I was getting but I remember that that growth spurt and I remember actually one of your obviously yourself and Stevie Nuge were the top two junior players in the country and I remember you and Nuge playing I think it was the quarterfinals of the Irish Senior Open which was being held in Riverview and you were using the Wilson Sticks and you'd grown a lot from, you know, being a 12-year-old, 13-year-old. And uh, I think you beat Steve for the first time in a, you know, a long time in that event. But Millfield obviously played you, you know, did, w was a really, really good place for you to go to. And, I, and Phil Thomas, um, great yeah, guy. Philly T was brilliant. Yeah, he was, uh, he was, he was really good. Uh, really good for me um at millfield he was only 21 or 22 himself um you know thinking back i thought you know felt like he was a he was a you know an adult or whatever and i obviously he was but it was only a few years between us in hindsight but yeah he was uh he really um he was he was great fun to be around phil uh dan i don't know if you know phil thomas but he was a coach in millfield uh um when i was there so he was uh he was the guy who'd be, you know, he'd be choosing the tunes on the on the minibus on the way to the club, you know, to the tournament, and you know, off court it was just a lot of fun. So ultimately, it's about um, it's about creating a connection with the sport and, and and the good times you have around it. Certainly in those in those ages, um, and yeah, we got the work done as well, and, and got got to a lot of tournaments. Um, but yeah, he 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 was sort of a really good mentor for me through that sort of sixteen seventeen. Um, year, year, year old period um, as I say I wasn't getting the three or four hours a day um, that maybe the guys at the big academies were getting but uh, you know maybe that would have been a bit too much for me at that age you know I was stepping up from what I had in Limerick to the to a more structured environment at Millfield where um, you know, I was able to get a, a a private lesson in the morning, go to my classes and then have a session in the afternoon. 
Um, but again, when I was at Millfield, like I couldn't get away to ITFs. You know, if I look at some of the the career trajectories of a lot of the guys in the top 100, generally they're playing 15 to 20 ITFs a year and a few futures. You know, and I wasn't getting even close to that. I was probably doing three or four. Um, uh, so, you know, there's lots of pieces to the puzzle, and unfortunately, we were our generation were probably trying to. We're, we're trying to figure it all out for themselves and our parents were and we made a few mistakes um along the way um, and didn't get it absolutely perfect um and we were also kind of hedging our bets a bit with education and like going to florida or going to spain back in 1997 i feel like that was a much bigger step than it would be to some for somebody now just with just the communications and the cheap flights and it's just a, it doesn't feel like that that, that much of a um, that much of a distance now but back then I think my parents didn't like the idea of sending me to a Bollocky Aries because you know if they felt like they were sending me off to be a tennis player um, and they wanted to just pull in the reins a bit because um, myself and Stephen Nugent went out to Bollocky Aries in the summer of 98 for two weeks and we hit with the Williams sisters and Andy Roddick and we were beating, beating like Stephen beat Andy Roddick in a practice set um, you know we were we were practicing with Martin Dam and Peter Corda. Um, if I look back now, just that exposure to those players would have been un unbelievable, um, you know, for a couple of years. Uh, so I feel like I maybe missed out a little bit on that. But at the same time, um, it might have been, as I say, a little bit too much uh, too soon. So look, I'm happy with I'm happy with how it went. No, no absolutely. And I think you, you touch on, if I go back to Simon Dixon, and if Simon's listening to this, uh, um, I hope he takes this the right way. You, you take yourself and Simon Dixon at age 11, 12. You, you yourself say he's a level or two above at that time. He stopped playing tennis at 21. You know, and, and I, think, I think that's, that's not personal to Simon. That's real in tennis. That, that there is this early specialisation that's thrown upon us. And that's what you do in tennis because we do have some success stories and we see Rafa at 17 being top 50 in the world and we see those things. However, you, you had a really healthy and successful tennis career, you know, and, and I think which, which actually, I think if we take your story, that's actually the story that we should be trying to recreate. It's not, it's not the Rafa's and the, and the Rogers and the Djokovic and the Serena's and the, you know, because, because these these people are kind of almost freaks in the generation players. And, and because we try and recreate that, maybe at times we do burn a lot of players out as well. So I think it would have been interesting if you'd had, had that to see if you still would have been playing at the age you were playing at and having the success that you had. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, there's definitely, there, there's sort of the, the, the group of players who are winning their winning team tennis and they petty side at 14 and, and unfortunately for them they almost they almost have to go the very professional route at that age because it's just it's it they're tracking a top 10 career so whereas i was i wasn't so i in hindsight had the luxury of 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 you know that having to keep that balance because it just didn't look like i was going to be um that type of a that type of a player so yeah i had the the U.S. college experience and was able to come in at that way. As I say, I probably we probably pulled in the reins a little bit too much, a little bit too quarters, and that's why 
you know, I was one, two, nine career high. If I did it all over again, you know, 2020 and all that, I feel like I could have, I could have done uh, quite a bit better. Um, but at the same time, it's so easy to, it's so easy to say that in hindsight. And as I say, we're all kind of learning, I think in terms of the pathways for players and what to do and what not to do based off our own experiences. Whereas we were a little bit in the dark, like her, my, my, as I spoke back, back to my sister, like she would have been, um, you know, last 16 of orange ball under 18, she played junior Wimbledon and she took two years off after, um, after finishing her schooling. Um, and was like going to Algeria and Morocco and places on her own back in 1990. And after two years, she was like, you know what, I'm I'm going to go to to college in Dublin because, um, you know, it's <laughs> it was a little bit little bit grim, um, you know, that 25 30 weeks a year on your own. So I think my parents probably saw that as well. It was about nine nine years between me and my sister. So. They, they they were they didn't want to see that happening either. So uh, yeah, we struck a we struck a bit of a balance, um, but it's it's tough out there, and you need to be managed. And everybody's different as well. So um, you know, you see guys like Olivier Rockus would and Justine Ennen would have been in those um, those big under fourteen tournaments that I was playing in that Simon would have been winning, and they kind of you know they would have probably quit school at sixteen and gone full time, and they had wonderful careers so you know it's just it's hard to know how to uh, how to get it exactly right for everyone no no it is and and college t- tell us about your college experience you went to cal cal berkeley yeah so peter wright was the um was the davis cup captain at the time and he was uh, and still is the, the head coach in berkeley so i would have known peter he would have come over played davis cup for ireland even though he's 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 from from california originally um but his dad his parents were irish so i would have known him for a number of years and so i if i was going to go to college in the states it was kind of always going to be berkeley just because it kind of it ticks so many boxes uh, academics athletics climate it's in a great conference the pac 10 now the pac 12 so um so yeah, I played Davis Cup for him in 2000. Made my Davis Cup debut against Croatia. Uh, played Karlovic. Um, Ivan Isovic was on that team. Ancic was an incredible team. They won it about two years later. So what what they were doing in Group Two, I don't know. <laughs> in 2000, but uh, we uh, we uh, we actually yeah. So that was that was an amazing debut actually. But then Peter, uh, I I had already committed to taking a year off, so I went and played in Australia, South Africa, New Zealand, a kind of a tour and played some satellites and as I say got up to, to 800, 810 I think it was um, and then went to Berkeley so um, it was sort of a, a bit of a no-brainer that I would go to college really um, just such a good deal it was a full scholarship um, and so yeah off I went um, and yeah, had four four and a bit great years there I had wrist surgery in the middle of it so um, I had an extra semester at the end but uh, yeah I met Wayne Ferrer over there he lived uh, very close by and that was where he trained he trained with the college team his last few years and then when he retired it was my third and fourth year at berkeley so he was on a bit at a bit of a loose end and he kind of took me under his wing and did a lot of work with me um and so i was getting uh one-on-ones at wayne in the morning um then i'd go to class then i'd have team practice in the afternoon um so i always try to try to outwork my teammates uh, in terms of try to have my hours always more than my teammates hours um, because I just kind of my logic was that if I'm doing just a regular team practice then not only am I not getting ahead of my teammates there's another 50 or 100 college college teams in the US who are all doing yeah. that so I was going to try and get my hours in so 
so Wayne, yeah, gave me a lot of belief. Actually, he told me I could be top hundred. Uh, he, felt, he felt like I could be, I could be top hundred, um, and uh, yeah, we did a lot of good work together. So that was uh, that was massive for me. A kind of a former top ten guy saying that because I didn't have a lot of that in my in mm. my career. Uh, guys, sort of saying, I think you can do this, and and also didn't have a lot of uh, interaction with people who'd made it. Just nature of being in Ireland, and even even being around the UK a lot. To be perfectly honest, there's only a, even for a country like like Britain, there's only a handful of guys who've actually been there and done it and worn the t-shirts. So, you know, where as opposed to Spain or France, if you're a top French or Spanish junior, you're probably going to be in the world of some really great players. Yeah you even practice whatever it is from a young age and that makes a big difference as well. So to have that was, was really good for me. It's really interesting. And, and I think, yeah, it is. It's belief. Belief comes in many different forms, but like you say, hearing, hearing that from a player like Wayne, you know, and that's, that's not a normal college experience. So you, you were certainly, you know, fortunate to have that. And I'm sure you earned that through, it, it was, it was, um, yeah. Well, I suppose, yeah. It was a bit of a selling point that Wayne was practicing with the team when I first went. Um, yeah. He was part of it, and yeah, he, 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 he used to say he enjoyed working with me because I, because I was, you know, just, just mad for information from him, basically. So, um, and he, he worked with. Um, uh, so I, I I get his name wrong, but he's the he 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 went to UCLA, but he he's uh, is it Mackenzie McDonald? Um, he's top hundred now. So yeah. he's from he's from around that area. So Wayne did a lot of work with him as a junior as well. So Wayne was really he's a really good coach, um, and has always done a bit of work with Chilich uh, the grass court season last year. But uh, yeah, so always lucky to have. Him. Uh, it's another it's another great example of of humility, hard work attracts, attracts things, you know, that's the way, it's the way that the world works, you know, that, if you were some snotty teenager who was turning up and half arse on your practices, then Wayne Ferreira wouldn't be coming out of his way to jump on court with you, you know, so fair play to you, and, and obviously you made big strides through your college career, when, when you came out of college, were you convinced the pro route was the route that you wanted to go? Oh yeah, no, it was it was it was it was my ma- my my daily focus for the three years previous. So yeah, no, I was um, I was I was going to play yeah for sure. So I I I got to three in the NCAA rankings. So that was another sort of another bit of belief for me because I I, I struggled with belief through my career. Um, you know, from from John, I've spoken to you about this before. I, I would often have to take a set off a guy before I went and beat him you know I remember when I went down to Australia and New Zealand and did that tour when I had just finished school you know I was playing guys 300 350 and I remember being sort of surprised that I was doing very well against them yeah. uh, but I wasn't I, I, I was qualifying for futures every week but then if I played a guy 350 you know I'd lose six and four but you know so it was kind of I, I was always slow to take that next step and I kind of continued that throughout my career now maybe that's a little bit of an overhang from not having an outstanding junior career um you know if I was going and, and winning uh you know grade A ITFs under 18 if I went and played a guy 350 I was going to go and probably take him out so I think that's one of the benefits of having a a good junior career and a good junior sort of schedule I suppose because you get you get exposed to that but yeah so I was three in the NCAA rankings so that helped um, me believe that I was going to be a top 200 top 250 player at least um, so got up to about 450 really quickly actually only in, in a few months won a satellite in Switzerland and every futures I played 
I was there or thereabouts, I felt like I was one of the top guys in the, in the draw. Um, so that, that just got me up to the challenger level. Obviously, the challenger um, journey is always a little bit longer and, and tougher. And I won a, I won a challenger. Um, my first challenger win was in India in 2008. I was 2 220 uh, in the world. Um, and then uh, played another couple of weeks. Was getting really comfortable at the challenger level and actually hurt my hip. For the first time, um, down a challenger in 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 Bosnia, um, slipped on a wet clay court and was out for three months, and that pushed me back a bit in my ranking. Took a hit, but then then got back up to the to the top top two hundred one and one a challenger in Israel um, in twenty ten. So I was there for a couple of years, um, but uh, yeah, the, the the college thing really helped me um, belief wise. Just another stepping stone up, I suppose. I think to, to again to take you back a little bit, Connor. I think you make a really interesting point about the juniors because a lot of people dismiss junior rankings because ultimately once you're on the on the pro tour you're on the pro tour and it's it, it kind of counts for nothing physically however i'm with you on on the fact that i do think it has quite a big impact on the sense of belonging you know and just to kind of share a story you know i've spent quite a bit of time with liam Brody. And obviously Liam was finalist of finalist of Wimbledon juniors, finalist of US Open, you know, very much in and around. You know, one of my memories of Wimbledon 2012 was all you could hear was Liam Brody and Nick Kyrgios in the changing rooms. You know, they were very loud. And then fast forward to kind of 2017, 2018 Wimbledon, and you've got Kyrgios asking Liam to practice. You've got us walking past the court and Dominic Team asking Liam how things are, and, and there's just this sense of of feeling and belonging that does count for so much in our sport. I think you know, and it's often not not talked about because it's not not really a tangible thing. Um, but I think it's a really important point that you've made on that. Yeah. So, I mean, I, I just yeah, I, I think a lot of people um, are under. Um, sort of the, the, the illusions about where they're going to be. So when you're 18 or 19, if you haven't done X, Y, and Z, for me, generally, you're going to really struggle to be a, a top-class professional. There are obviously exceptions, and, and yeah, I'm probably maybe one of those exceptions, although obviously we should point out that I didn't make top 100, so uh, I'm, 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 I, didn't, uh, I didn't do everything I wanted to do. But um, I think if you're... If you're not, if you're on a full-time schedule, more or less, at 17 or 18, and you're playing 20, 25 ITFs, um, and you're not winning, you know, two or three grade ones, and and right there in the mix at Grand Slams, it's not going to come out of the air for you. Generally, I don't think at 23 or 24. Um, usually, if a guy is a bit of a, a late bloomer, it's possibly because he was finishing his schooling, um, or he had a December birthday, or you know. There's, or maybe he, you know, hurt his wrist in his under 17 year and just couldn't play for, you know, generally, if you look at it, you know, there's a logic to it. And there's, a, you know, you know, Roger Federer was winning grade twos at 15. He was winning one Wimbledon at 16. You know, it, it usually tracks through your career. So um, I think there's a, you know, there's huge merit in playing those ITFs and, and those junior tournaments to see where you stack up. Um, because I think it gives you a really good indicator of what you should be doing or whether you should be going to college in the States or not. Um, because, you know, I think people, some people are a bit head in the sand about it. 
Yeah. You know, they're playing, they're playing a full schedule um, at 17, but they're only 50 or 60 in the world RTF. Like the chances of it coming good for you are, are, are quite, are really small. Um, so yeah, I think people have to just watch out for that. No, it's good straight talking. Yeah. So, in, in, and and on your on your pro career, what what were your philosophies as a player? What did you believe in? You know, what what did you hang your hat on as a player? Um. Well, it was again about, about being um, the hardest working guy at the tournament was 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 my next thing. So I, I wanted to be the hardest working guy in my in kind of college in the states, uh, and then it was it was being the hardest working guy at the tournament. Um. So. Um, if I if I lost um, or won, I would still go out and do my do my work uh, in the afternoon. And I was quite open minded with coaches as well. I worked with a number of different coaches and took little bits uh, from everybody. Um, I, I I tried to always travel with a coach as well um, because you're spending so much time out there and there's so much of your time that isn't spent uh, playing matches. Um, I felt like you needed to maximise your time. Uh, so whether I lost first, second round or not, I was still getting work done. And, and you can even, like, you don't have to be on court with your coach to be learning. Um, like, I did a lot of work with uh, with Joe O'Dwyer, um, who's a, I don't know if, um, if Dan, you know Joe, but Joe's a, an eccentric uh, coach, but he's worked with some some really good players. He's worked with James McGee and, and Jeff Solzenstein, who's, who was top 100, and myself, and had some really good... Uh, um, he had some some really good information for me. He really helped me on my running forehand. Um, I, I I could I could barely hit a slice backhand at 26, um, and he taught me how to hit a slice backhand. Made a massive difference to me in terms of my variety. Um, I could be a little bit one dimensional. Um, you know, I didn't I didn't have great hands. Um, so uh, having a, having a slice as a change up for me was great. Um, and uh, he really helped me on my running forehand. Um, you know that whole the whole buggy whip right side finish debate that you know some people really love it some people aren't uh, too keen on it we, we did a lot of work on that uh, it really helped me um, again a little bit more variety in my forehand with that shot um, and some other sort of specific footwork patterns um, so that information I was only getting at 26 or 27 um, yeah. and, and definitely helped me help kick me on I thought that brought me up another level um, and then working with it working in um, with Gary Cahill um, in DCU was quite a good setup for me for a couple of years as well because I had a nutritionist there, a physical trainer. It was an indoor center with a coach there to roll out the practices. So it was because uh, for, for a year or two after I finished college, I was a little bit sort of almost organizing my own practices and it was a little bit ad hoc, whereas a bit more a bit more organized um, yeah. when I when I when I when I kind of hooked up with Gary. So, um, but again, yes, still learning um, and. Uh, and mar margins and depth on my ground strokes were something that I probably naturally had through my career, but I kind of uh, I understood those principles a bit more um, towards the end of my career after working with Joe as well and more specific drills. Like one of the big things for me is you can be told to your mar you need to bring your margins in, but unless you get the cones out and practice it for three hours a day, you're probably not going to bring the margins in in a match. So for me, it wasn't about... Uh, if for me, things have to be grooved in. So, like, I, I'm often a bit suspicious about the word decision making um, or the phrase decision making in tennis because for me, it's it, it has to be something that's in your subconscious and in your muscle memory for it to really work. So, for me, if you need to bring them, if you want to have the margins tight in a match, 
you need to be you need to be working it every day. It's not something that necessarily you you get told and understand. If that yeah. I hope, hope that makes sense. But so that was something that I learned in the last years of my career. That something if you want something to be applied in a match, it really has to be something you're, you've worked on for for months and months, really. And that seems to have been your thing through your career. You you've worked and worked and worked, which I I think is what is so impressive because, like you say, you you went against the grain the grain a little bit you weren't on on this pathway to being a, a top 150 ATP player and that is something that um, you certainly should be very proud of you know because I think I think when we when we look at tennis players success is always relative you know and you I always believe you could have someone who gets to 500 ATP that's actually more successful than someone that gets to 200. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and also, I think even the word pathway, I think I think that's something that a lot of parents probably hear that, you know, you know, their son or daughter is in a is in a some sort of a, a national program and they're now on a quote unquote pathway. It's sort of as if they're about to go down a water slide into professional tennis. It's that easy. Like there's no there's no pathway, in my opinion. Like if you look at Jamie Murray or Andy Murray, um, you know, it was their mom at home and you know just hustling and 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 figuring it out um you know they weren't sort of plucked at eight or nine and brought down to a national center in london and it doesn't work like that and i wasn't i was the same i was from a small town and um i didn't have a murray type career but 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 my point is you know you got guys from all over the world from all sorts of different backgrounds doing it a slightly different way like so, so Connor, in terms, in terms of, you know, we've talked about a lot of logistical things around, around your career. I'd love to get into some of the experiences you had because you, you certainly had some fantastic experiences. And, and I know you also had a couple of heartbreaking experiences. Can we touch on, on the Wimbledon story? Um, came close to, to playing against the legend that is Roger Federer in the next round. How... Talk, talk us through that. Yeah, it was uh, it was an incredible uh, summer actually because uh, obviously that was the U.S. Open as well. But it was a really uh, it was a really rich experience in terms of like the, the interest that that sort of it generated in Ireland. Um, it would have been I think since 1980 that um, Sean Sorensen had played, so it was a long time coming. And uh, when I as soon as I qualified, um, I got a I started to get messages through and they were already at the last round of qualifying. There was quite a few people at it. So it was, uh, yeah, there was a real buzz about it and it just felt like I was, uh, um, I was living out my dreams basically. Um, and it was, uh, it was funny, like the last round of qualifying, um, it, it started, I think on the Thursday, uh, and didn't finish till the Saturday just through rain delays. So it was, it was, it was straight sets. It was best of, it was best of five, but it was just, uh, it took a long time to get done, um, and uh, and uh, yeah, when I played Manorino, I played a great match. Um, I, I played him at a Futures uh, a few years before, and it was three sets, so I kind of I quite liked kind of his game style, and uh, and that sort of suited me. So um, I was glad to be able to go out and play a good match, and people got got into it, and it was it was televised at home. So um, as I say, it it it, it um, I could have gone out and lost two, two, and two. You know, and it would have been an hour and a half. But the fact that it got uh, 
it got went deep into a fifth set. Um, you know, it's all, all part of the the Wimbledon sort of story. And um, yeah, probably uh, probably something I think about nearly every day. <laughs> I wish I'd gotten that one um, and played Federer on centre, um, but it wasn't to be. And and when I came off court, I remember obviously the f- went over to my my family straight away, and and they were really positive about about everything and. Like if I'd gone over to them and they would have been as down as I was, it would have really, I think that would have made it a lot tougher. But they were all about how great a match it was and how, what a cool, what a cool afternoon. Basically, that was their take on it. Um, and uh, so yeah, that was uh, it was it was it was the highlight of my my career, no doubt. And I'm very lucky that I got to do that because, you know, I could easily have 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 not. I could have maybe, okay, I could have could have qualified for a couple more. Um, but, but at the same time, I could easily not have happened. And I was down match points, first round qualities um, against Justin Awana. I think I, I think maybe four match points I saved. So um, for me to to qualify and for it to be the, the first one um, I qualified for to be Wimbledon as well, yeah. it just means that so much more. And friends from 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 Limerick and Dublin were over watching and supporting, and it was it was class. It was brilliant. Um, I I. I uh, you know, it was it, it was it was it was it was the highlight of my career, even more than playing at the U.S. Open. Obviously, got to play on Arthur Ashe against Djokovic, but um, this was uh, this was this in Wimbledon. It's just that little bit different. And did were the British crowd behind you as an Irishman? Oh yeah, um, I mean, I don't know if many British got got seats. To be honest, they're all taken by the uh, by the Irish. But no, I mean, I. I uh, I I I I I've always I always feel like um, generally the British um, tend to support the Irish when let's say a world if it's a World Cup in soccer or something I feel like the British actually get behind the Irish as well so um, I never never felt anything um, like that so yeah they were they were great um, it was a really it was a really uh, it was a really good atmosphere because it's obviously set, court seventeen is 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 a small court and. Um, at, towards the end, you know, there was real, there was sort of stacking of people looking, looking over walls and, and, and on all that. So it was, it was, it was great. Amazing. And then on, on to the US Open, Djokovic on Arthur Ashe. Wow. Yeah, it was, uh, so I obviously mentioned earlier, yeah, we, I was over with Sheena and my, my, my brother Ross was, was there with his, uh, with his wife and, uh, John Doran, an Irish tennis player, former Davis Cup player, got married uh, in New York that week. Um, and so I was at a couple of those sort of functions. I was actually at his wedding. So again, just a really fun week. And it wasn't just about the tennis. And, I, and as I say, said earlier, I would have maybe, should have maybe done a little bit more of that in my career. But uh, yeah, a really, uh, yeah, a really, a really tricky uh, last round qualities. Um, Matway Middlecoop, um, I, I was down a set. Um, and came back and won it in three, but it was sort of late afternoon when I, the sun was kind of going down nearly, but it was a uh, really good atmosphere. Quite a lot of people go to qualies at the US Open. Um, and then, yeah, I remember getting a text through from a mate of mine, um, which is how I found out it was Djokovic, um, just saying, uh, you know, very simple, just said Djokovic. <laughs> and I knew exactly what he meant. Uh, so I checked the draw and then phone started pinging and... Uh, uh, yeah, obviously got uh, I, over the over that weekend. I uh, I came down with a with a with a with a bit of food poisoning, which was really uh, uh, annoying. But uh, at the same time, I, I still got a huge amount out of it. And, and I, that 2011 Djokovic was uh, 
was almost as tough as Kieran in the 1996. You know, I don't think I was going to get the win. So <laughs> um, <laughs> it's one of, one, of, one of those one of those matches, and I can say I played uh, you know played on a big court of the Slam. So it was uh, it was great. Not doesn't hit as heavy a ball. Yeah, he suits. Yeah, Jock. I much prefer Djokovic. You know, Matt game matches up way better than yours, Kieran. <laughs> Especially on a wet Astro, you know. <laughs> and, and actually, and with that one, Conor, though, I reckon, I think Djokovic will go down as as the most successful, whether people talk about the GOAT or whatever. I think he'll have the, have the most Grand Slam men's titles when all said and done. It's a, it's a personal opinion. So yeah. that, that experience could get better and better. As as the year go, the years go on, as as Djokovic's name since legend as his legend grows, yeah, yeah, I, I think you're right. I mean, I think he's obviously all th- all three of them, especially probably especially Nadal and Djokovic, are are very unlucky for not being able to add to their add to their Grand Slam holes at the moment. You know, um, they're 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 obviously losing out on on at least probably three, and ho- hopefully Aussie goes ahead as well, but. Uh, you know they are missing out on adding to their tally, which is uh, which is which is unfortunate. But isn't it isn't it interesting how you're not kind of hearing a thing from them about that? You know these guys are. <laughs> you don't hear a lot of uh, excuses from them, do you? So yeah, they're they're just getting on with the job. Um, and uh, yeah, the, Nadal in particular has been really interesting to listen to the last couple of weeks about it. Um, and uh, yeah, hopefully hopefully we get back for uh, for Aussie. I have to now, <clears throat> whilst I have the Davis Cup and Fed Cup captains of Ireland, I have to move into Irish tennis. Um, where to start, I don't know. How easy to go on you guys, I also don't know. Um, how, how much to push. You know, ultimately, it's not been good enough, I think, is where I would start. You know, we take, we take yourself, Connor. You know, there's obviously, there's obviously some names that over the year, the James McGee's, you know, Sam Barry, you know, our own Peter Bothwell, you know, these sort of guys. But but nobody really has gone to the heights of the game since yourself on the men's or the women's side. Why not? What And what needs to change to make it happen? Yeah, well, uh, I, I think it's it's probably four or five reasons, Dan, that I would, that I would say. Um, the, first, the first one is, and okay, it's probably the most... The, the one that's trotted out the most, but I'll get it out of the way, is the artificial grass. Um, you know, as as our primary surface. And when I was growing up in in Limerick Lawn, we had twelve courts. We actually had six hard courts and six artificial grass. And over the fifth, few years, they were changed to all twelve artificial grass. And it's just, it's like our, a blanket across the country. Every tennis club, it's all artificial grass. Um, so I've been saying for a few years, well, could you not at least you know, if you have six courts, have two of them as as green clay or you know whatever, um, as opposed to just going full full artificial grass. Because obviously we do have an issue with the climate, um, so the artificial grass sort of makes sense. But for producing tennis players, it's just it's it's it's, it's awful. And that's we, 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 do we need to go into why? But I mean, obviously, the, uh, an error on a clay court, you're probably hitting twice as many twice as many balls as you are. Uh, the same hour on an artificial grass course and 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 clay courts are a decision making machine basically um so that's why you've got every single year 14 spanish and 14 archies and 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 a bunch of french and italian guys is because um you know they grew up on clay so 
I mean, if I, if I went back and looked at my career and, and, and every time I played in an artificial grass court in Ireland, instead it had been a clay court that I'd stepped foot on, you know, I think I would have been a hell of a lot better um, just, for, just for that alone. Um, so, look, that's the first thing. Second thing is I think we have 60, 60 indoor courts, 6-0 indoor courts in Ireland. Um, I think Belgium have like 1,500. Yeah. You know, uh, Belgium, I think the population of Belgium is about 10 million. It's 5 million in Ireland. But my maths isn't, uh, you know, isn't that good, but that's more than double. So um, it's, um, it's kind of, it's, it's, so that, that's a big thing. So uh, more bubbles, more bubbles up on, on our, uh, in our clubs around the country would make a bit of a difference. Um, third thing is we don't have, um, you know, any, uh, enough international junior tournaments. So if you look at the kind of, you know, your, obviously, okay, your big, your big countries, you can, you can maybe let's not compare, but let's say your Croatia's again and your Belgium's, you know, they have four tennis Europe under 12s, a same under 14 all the way up and then maybe six ITFs and they've got six futures and, but then they also have WTA and ATP events. So it's something for the kids to, to really get sort of inspired by at home. Um, whereas we don't have any real international junior events. Um, and then we, we, we haven't had a kind of a major international senior competition in Ireland since the 1960s or 70s. So um, it kind of gets lost uh, a little bit. The, 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 converse, the tennis conversation gets lost in Ireland behind a few other sports. Um, so, and then also we haven't got um, a year-end um, sort of t domestic calendar for the juniors. So everything sort of starts in May and ends in August. Um, and the kids go back to school and, you know, it gets lost. And we've, we've got a pretty competitive sort of educational structure where the, 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 we have what's called the leaving cert, which is our equivalent of the A-levels. And you have to do six, seven subjects and it's, it's a point system. So, you know, it's just very competitive. And obviously a lot of, if you're good at tennis in Ireland, generally you're, you know, usually going to a kind of a good school and you're pretty academic. So they're trying to juggle all this stuff and we don't have somewhere where the kids can go and, you know, maybe do something a little bit more like what you have in Soto. So, um, yeah, it's tough. Um, you know, they're the, they're the things that jump out at me, uh, Dan, uh, John, yeah. I don't know what, what, what your thoughts are, but they're, they're the kind of main things for me anyway. Yeah, no, I'd be, I'd be very much aligned with, you know, your thought process, Connor, and you, you know, you're spot on in regards to the surfaces and the amount of competitions that's re required. And I think, the, I think the other thing, the elephant in the room here is, you know, the cost of playing tennis. I mean, for anybody that, you know, has played professional tennis or played junior tennis, you know, if you're coming from Ireland, majority of the times you've got to fly, you've got to travel, you know, it can cost you anything from a thousand euros to 2000 euros a week without a coach to play a tournament. I mean, that's a lot of money. That's a lot of money. And I think, you know, like you said, bringing competition into the country is an excellent way for us to be able to produce more competition on home soil for Irish tennis players. You only have to look at yourself, James McGee, Sinead Lowen, Georgia Drummy, your sister Gina, Yvonne Doyle, who's won events in Ireland, the Irish Opens. Um, that's been a hell of a, ben it's so beneficial to those athletes. Uh, down through down through the years, I know in Dundalk, where uh, we held three years of junior ITFs. 
that was a, a big, big protocol of mine uh, to be able to bring competition home, bring it to the club, um, and also for you know to enhance tennis in the local community for local communities to be able to come down and watch international tennis. So I fully agree with what you're saying about bringing competition into Ireland, and I think that mindset as a club that that has to happen across nationwide. So you know, you talk about competition, let's get a national club league, the same as you have out in the UK, the same as there is in Holland. We don't, I don't, I don't remember Ireland ever having a national club league, just like soccer. Get all the mm. clubs engaged within actually performance. I certainly think there's a culture within Ireland that's been developed now that I'm in the coaching world a lot, that I'm not too sure if everybody's fully engaged within competing at the weekend. So what, what do I mean by that? clubs are they actually engaged within producing tennis players in their little patch mm. happen in every single club across the country and yeah um, well i mean uh, go, go, going back to to, to, to my journey and and, and 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 you boys as well i'm sure like you start off as a tennis player trying to be the best in your club you know yeah. it, you don't it wasn't you know, thinking about being a professional tennis player when I was nine or ten, I wanted to win the club championships under twelve, and yeah, uh, and, and you know, I think I think so. Ha having healthy competition in the clubs for those junior age groups is massive, and also like you have, we have under eights events and under nines events around uh, around Ireland now. But um, I know my my brother is as a as a, a little girl who he's trying to get into tennis now. But he was saying it's like there's so there's not there's so few of these events like it should be like the soccer or the rugby or whatever where you have a match every Saturday or every Sunday um, and, and, and there should be an under 8s or under 9s or under 10s event maybe every weekend um, in Leinster and there should be one every weekend in Munster um, and it do, you know, it's only a two hour event you know and it doesn't need to, there doesn't need to be a um, you know any bells and whistles with it you just get them in you get them to play a few matches and then you get, you know, that, that, and then and that gets them hooked. You know, they're playing competition, and, and and that's the whole point of it. There's so much in Ireland is, you're you're training, you're on a training block for six weeks, then you play a tournament, and then you're on another training block. I mean, I, I know that would have driven me mad when I was when I was a kid. Um, so you know, I needed competition. That was the whole point of it. Um, you know, you're, we're asking kids to kind of delay gratification all the time and oh if you do this then you're, t you're telling the 13 year old oh when you, if you do this when you're on the pro tour it's really going to help I mean that's not how 13 year olds think they're thinking I want to go and beat that lad from that other uh, you know from that other part of town because I want to be the number one in Ireland you know that's what gets guys going um, so I think we're kind of misreading the whole um, the motivation for, for kids that it's much more short term and it's about it's about getting kids out competing and, and, and falling in love with the sport that way. But I think, I think a couple of things for me from the outside is first thing that comes to mind is Scotland. You know, Scotland's not too different to Ireland in size, you know, and obviously we can look at the success in Scotland. The second thing for me that, that really, really comes to mind from when I, when I look at Irish tennis is coaches and the hourly rate culture of coaches in Ireland. And, and, and I think we know this when you've touched on it, Connor, throughout this chat, systems and federations don't produce tennis players. You know, little isolated places do. 
and, and, and there's somebody that's driving that. And if I take Spain, where I've been now for 10 years, and people ask me the question all the time, what's, what's so good about Spain? It's blown me away how many coaches there are that are working for very little money, but who are absolutely passionate about the sport. And, and then they have, they have little clusters of players. And I tell you one thing they do every weekend is they take their players to tournaments. You know, and that's, that's, that's very much, granted, that's now very much in the Spanish culture. You know, if you go to a tournament in Spain, it's full of coaches. Not coaches that are probably getting paid a whole lot to be there. Wage structured for a, to have a monthly fee. And for this monthly fee, we look after you. We're accountable for your development. And, and from, yeah. what I, from what I see, why would a coach go take a group of kids to a tournament? And I'm sure there's some. And John, I know that you are, you're one of the most passionate guys that I know. And you do an amazing job. But is there enough coaches that truly know and are committed to what an actual journey with a, with a top-class player is. Because if you do, to, to do that, we know it's giving up weekends. We, we know that it's, it's traveling a lot. We know, we know all of those things, but why would they give up 300 euros, 400 euros from the weekend to do that? You know, and that, that just from the outside seems to me be the culture within the clubs and almost until there's pockets of, of coaches around, around the country that are doing that to maybe help them change the culture of the players, maybe that's a difficult thing to bring on board. I don't, I don't know what you guys think of that. You guys are closer to it than me. Yeah, well, I mean, I, 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 I just remember when I was growing up, you know, coaches were kind of few and far between and, and, and the people that were running the tournaments and the people that were taking us on our little team events were, were volunteers. They were the mums and the dads. And now, you know, it's, as I say, it's a, it's, it's a full-time, it's a full-time coach and, and yeah, he's running, he's running a squad um, as opposed to a tournament uh, because he can get, you know, he can get 12, 12 kids on three courts and, uh, you know, they're all paying him a certain amount of money. So, you know, and I think that it's not, it's, and I'm not saying that these coaches are necessarily all doing this from a cynical perspective. Um, I think an awful lot of coaches think that they're the big, that the, the, I think co co coaches think that they are their only, the only hope the player has and, and, and players need to be coached, you know, six days a week to get good at tennis. Um, you know, I, I think coaches are are, are, are an add-on and they're an absolutely necessary uh, part of the tennis journey. But they're, I think they're 15%. And I think all of a sudden it's become, it's, they're 95%. Yeah. Um, and I think that's possibly something that's more, that's worldwide, not just in Ireland. But um, yeah, I, I, but I also think coaches can make money um, sitting on their balcony, having a cup of coffee, watching a tournament going on. All the players have paid a tenner to play the tournament. So, you know, there's a bit of that as well. Yeah, no, I, I, I agree, and I agree with both of you. And, and I, I suppose, Dan, when you touch on that, that, that subject about, you know, tournaments and competition, I, I think it all revolved around that. And, and, and by bringing that competition more into the forefront, it naturally changes the culture of the game. And, you know, it's difficult for players if there's not enough competition for them to play. And that way we're not able to be able to, to do those types of things that you're you, you know, you're talking about, but if, if players and coaches are engaged within competing at the weekend, every weekend, I mean, that in itself 
totally changes things. And, you know, we've got very, very good coaches here in Ireland and we've got very, very good tennis players. Um, I think by subtly changing some things like that, like the surfaces, like Connor just spoke about, adding more competition, you know, into the mixer, that naturally starts to change things for the better, in my opinion. And my last thing before we do, I, I would love to talk all day about Irish tennis. I'm also, you know, something I'm very passionate about as well. Um, but I'm, we're going to go into something lighter. Connor Nyland, ATP 129. Does Irish tennis get enough of you? Because talking to you today, and I've been fortunate enough to have a Davis Cup experience with you, Connor, and getting to know you, you know, in, in our adulthood. You have a great tennis mind, a great tennis mind. You are, you're thoughtful. You have the mindset of, of a champion. You know, you understand it. You know, you are, you're a hard worker. You get it. You simplify things. And, and I guess my, that would be my one thing and almost plea to, to, to you or to Irish tennis. How, how do Irish tennis get a bit more of Conan Island? Granted, you've got your, your own job and your own life and your own family but I think there's so much you can give whether it's whether it's even just mentoring some coaches and spending time talking talking tennis with them because that that's too much of a tennis brain in a nation that isn't being successful enough in the sport for it to go to waste yeah well I think there's probably uh yeah there's, there's quite a lot in that Dan but um yeah, like I think it's there's a lot. There's a, I often find in 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 life actually, you'd be amazed at how few people would come to me for advice. Like I'll get junior t junior tennis players, you know, maybe even some some senior tennis players will will pick up the phone or I'll, I'll come and meet them and and I'll give them uh, I'll give them some advice, but but then they won't act on it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I feel like there's there's people that they they've already made up their mind before they meet you about what they're going to do uh you tell them it doesn't fit what they thought originally and they just go and do what they were going to do anyway so um i know that's maybe a little bit off what your your point but um okay, i i i'd love to be involved um but i think unless you're a decision maker uh you know unless the decision maker is is totally on board then you know my influence is never going to be all that much so um I've been saying we need weekend tournaments, we need more indoor courts, and we need clay courts for for for, for maybe fifteen, twenty years now. Um, and I, I I was having conversations around the dinner table in Limerick in the late in the in the in the in the, in the early and mid nineties with my family, and we're kind of still having the same conversations now yeah. with you boys. So um, uh, just with a few more coaches thrown in these days, it seems like. But um, I'll just go back to my own my own career like i i wasn't big on squads um it was an awful lot of one-on-one -on -one. um and i just think we've kind of got a bit of a squad four on a court culture in ireland um so i just like to see see it go back to the to the bare bones and, and more competition in terms of how i can influence doing these types of podcasts like I, I've, I've done a few uh, interviews obviously with this lockdown and um there's a little irish tennis page for coaches that's set up on facebook and i see somebody's sort of taken my point about more tennis europe's and you know he said he's going to try and put a put a um, put a tennis europe event on his club and uh, rob cherry from Allen park who, who's really really active coach um he's 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 
just comes across as as, as really motivated to, to try and change. So yeah. I guess it's it's one it's one 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 set of ears at a time, Dan. I suppose at the moment. Yeah. Um, but yeah, look, I'd love to be yeah, I'd, I'd love to be in kind of making decisions on that. But uh, yeah, it's just not the way it's uh, it's set up at the moment. Great. Well, Connor, uh, a big thank you for your time. We're going to do a quick fire, quick fire round, as is tradition with uh, with control the coronavirus. So, are you ready? It is quick fire. You don't have time to think here. It's just top of your head. First question. First question is a big one. Mm, okay. England or Scotland? Scotland. Oh my goodness! <laughs> so, I, I didn't think about it. That's what came out. <laughs> <laughs> Edgebaston Priory will not be happy with you. Um, <laughs> serve or return? Return. Grass or clay? Grass. ATP or Davis Cup? Davis Cup. Lob or drop shot? Lob. But no hands. <laughs> the Davis Cup captain or the Fed Cup captain? <laughs> Gotta be Davis Cup captain, right? <laughs> <laughs> And one rule that you would change in tennis? Get rid of the five-minute warm-ups. Very good. Connor Nyland, it's been a pleasure. Thank you so much for your time. I would have loved to have kept on talking, um, but I'm sure people are going to find that extremely useful. And it was, it was fantastic. I love, love listening to you. And I, I hope to see you at a Davis Cup tie soon. Dan would uh, would love to uh, love to have you um, at every Davis Cup time. We had you over in Norway um, that week in Oslo, and it was uh, it was brilliant um, to have you involved. Obviously, you were there with having worked with Pete Boswell um, for for many years, and Sam Boswell as well um, in Soto. So uh, I would uh, I say if 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 I could have you every week, I would. Um, and uh, love what you guys are doing with the podcast. It's great, um, and I'm a big fan of. Uh, of you guys in general um you guys uh get it so uh the more the more conversations we can have i think the more good information we can we can get out there to i guess there's lots of tennis parents and players watching who are who are learning as they go um just like we all did so look pleasure being on thanks Connor. irish tennis legend cheers Connor. cheers boys big thank you to Connor Nyland and a big thank you to you all for listening. I hope you've enjoyed the show. As we have pointed out on social media, we will now be releasing our podcast on Wednesdays and Saturdays at 1pm European Central Time. Uh, hopefully that gets you into a, a rhythm of knowing what's to come. We have some amazing guests that are coming your way. So please make sure you keep sharing, liking, commenting, giving ratings, all the fantastic things that you have to do on podcasts to get them out there. Um, Much appreciated. And anyone got any comments, please stay in touch. We're also going to be adding podcast notes. And now that we're getting a little bit more time and getting used to this, we're going to add podcast notes to each podcast. So you'll be able to get links into finding out more about our guests more about the academy in Spain and also John's Academy in Ireland as well and um, so please take a look at them and enjoy and we look forward to seeing you next time thank you <laughs>